This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where I interview authors about their latest works. Listen to what inspired the storyline, how their covers and titles were chosen, their personal connection to the story, and other fascinating tidbits about the authors themselves. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. I can be found on Instagram and Pinterest at Thoughts from a Page. And if you have any comments about the podcast or feedback for me, I can be reached at Cindy H. Burnett at att.net. Hazel Gaynor is an award-winning New York Times, USA Today, and international bestseller. Hazel was selected by Library Journal as one of 10 big breakout authors for 2015. Her work has been translated into 14 languages to date. She is co-founder of Creative Writing Events, The Inspiration Project, and lives in Ireland with her husband and two children. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show as much as I enjoyed interviewing Hazel. Welcome, Hazel. I have been a huge fan of your books for years, and I'm just thrilled that you're here to speak with me today. Thank you, Cindy. So thrilled to chat to you, too. Well, I really, really liked When We Were Young and Brave, and I can't wait to talk about it. Oh, thank you. It's so lovely to finally talk about it and share the book with readers. So why don't we start out with you telling me a little bit about it? Okay, so When We Were Young and Brave is set in China, and it starts in December 1941, just after the events of Pearl Harbor, which led to the United States declaration of war against Japan. And the book is inspired by the most incredible true story of a school. The children and teachers collectively were taken to an internment camp by the Japanese army when they occupied the school after that bombing of Pearl Harbor. And it's the most shocking, really, set of circumstances. But what has been so amazing as I've researched and written the book and as readers have begun to react to it, is that despite this incredibly hard situation that children and their teachers find themselves in, their experience was peppered with huge amounts of resilience, of hope. And actually, there are a lot of parallels between the situation we all find ourselves in now, in the middle of a global pandemic, and the situation they found themselves in back in 1941 in the Second World War. So it was just the most remarkable story to discover, to then research and find out more about the war in the Pacific and that part of the World War, and then to reimagine the stories of the children and teachers through my characters, Nancy and Elspeth, a child and a teacher who narrates the story. One of the things that surprised me the most in the story was that the children were left for so long at the British school, even before the war. Yeah, so this school, um, Chifu School, was essentially a boarding school for the children of missionaries, businessmen, diplomats. So they were predominantly American, British and European families. And because obviously China is, is so enormous, the children were taken to the school from a very young age, you know, as young as five, and might often not see their parents again, even in school holidays, because the distances were so vast. And preceding the, the place where my book that jumps into the events of the Second World War, the Sino-Japanese War had, had been running for several years and had already 
displaced and disrupted many Chinese and made it really difficult for the parents to travel back to the school to connect with their children. So they, as you say, already several hundred children hadn't seen their parents for, you know, up to a year, sometimes longer, and then wouldn't continue to see them for the duration of the war. And that to me was just such a compelling, in a way, part of this story, because I I wanted to understand how that had affected the children And then also, how did it affect the teachers who were in their care and and effectively became parents as well as their teachers? So it was a really unique set of circumstances um, that, that led to the children being in this situation. How did you learn about this story and then become interested enough in it to write about it? I think it's fascinating always to me how authors find ideas. And, and actually, over the years, I've, I've realized more and more that it's often a case of the idea finding the author. And I really believe that, that there is a story out there waiting to be told. And of course, we're always hoping to find that, that nugget of history that hasn't been talked about as much or written about as much. And this story I first heard through the podcast, This American Life, And the episode started out with actually quite an amusing anecdote about Girl Scout cookies that had been delivered to the wrong person. Um, And I was listening to this, wondering how on earth this ended up having anything to do with the Second World War in China. Um, And that's how the episode unfolded through this um, batch of Girl Scout cookies being delivered to the wrong person. um, People had connected with one of the children who was in the school and as an adult had been obviously very affected by her experiences and was talking about her time in Weishen internment camp. So I I was sitting at my desk and, and it was one of those moments where you just, it's like your spidey senses go up and I immediately knew that this was something I wanted to know more about. I wanted to connect all the dots and and fell down a rabbit hole of research quite quickly to figure out what the situation was. And as I said at the beginning, I hadn't really read much fiction set in that part of the world or that part of the war. Um, So I felt that it was a really unique story as well. I agree. I think it's a very compelling story. And there is so much written about World War II in Europe. And so to have something set over in the Pacific is fabulous and great for people to learn more about that part of the war. Absolutely. You know, and World War II fiction has had such a surge in popularity in recent years. And I've, I've loved discovering parts of the war in Europe that I didn't know about. And I, and I think it's such a it's such an enormous event and and i think we're in an incredibly interesting place right now that we have access to archive material we have the internet which opens up a whole other world to us of research and you know isn't it amazing how many books there are written about the war but each of them has a unique premise each of them seems to have found another person's experience and that was what was really exciting to me as a writer was a different story of that global war and one that really resonated with me as a mother, thinking about how the children had reacted, drawing on my own memories of teachers who had such a profound impact on me. And I think we all have that teacher in our lives who 
whether they realized it or not, really had a lasting impact on us. And that's very much the relationship I develop in the book with Nancy and Elspeth. So, yeah, it, it feels like a part of the war that we haven't explored as much in fiction. And, and I hope we will continue to do so. That is the interesting part of World War II, I guess, because it went on long enough and so many countries were involved that even though there are many, many books written about World War II, now there are still so many stories that have not been told and we're just learning about. And I love that. Yeah, so do I. And it's, you think there can't possibly be another version of events or another story. And I, and I think what's happening is that as we reach these anniversary events. And I, and I think the people who were involved are reaching that stage of their life where finally they perhaps want to talk about it more. I mean, this was a generation where it wasn't encouraged to dwell on hardship or experience. It was very much you get on with things. And people were so traumatized, they sort of locked the experiences away. And I think that distance in time has allowed those who were there to feel more comfortable sharing their experience and that sense of of passing on a story, passing on an experience before it's too late. And I I really wanted to explore that sort of ordinary person's experience of war and how an ordinary person ends up in an extraordinary situation. And and that's really what happened to the teachers and children in Chifu School. Um, So yeah, I mean, I, I think there are so many more stories waiting to be talked about and and historical novelists have that wonderful ability to to retell them in a way that's engaging and feels almost relevant and present now to readers today what really stuck with me was the bravery of those teachers that they were put in such an unimaginable position and they had all of these children that they had to keep moving and then to different places and then finally into an internment camp and to keep their spirits up and to kind of move forward day to day. That must have been very hard. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, not not only are you suddenly in this terrifying situation yourself as an adult, but you have over 100 children looking to you for advice, for care, for just day-to-day needs. And and that was something that I really wanted to explore in the book, which is why I have the alternate points of view from Nancy, our young girl, and Elspeth, her teacher. And initially, Elspeth feels quite resentful of that additional responsibility. She she was planning herself to return to England and, and all of her plans are suddenly thrown into disarray. And there's this sense of obligation and duty that she struggles against. And, I, and I, I think that's a very real sort of authentic reaction to that situation. I agree completely. And that leads me into my next question. Can you tell me more about your research? Sure. So, do you know, when I actually, I heard the podcast and I, as I said, it was that real moment of my gosh, goosebumps, what, what is the story? And then I felt quite overwhelmed because I hadn't written a novel set in World War II before. It felt so enormous that at first I was very daunted by the prospect of writing this book. And and you're very, very conscious of doing justice to the memory of those people who did live through this experience. You know, this really happened. So I started quite big in terms of just understanding that part of the war, what was happening in China, the occupation of the Japanese, the events that had led up to that. Um, and then the events leading up to Pearl Harbor. 
I'd read a lot of history books, if you like, about the war in the Pacific. And then I started to research more specifically into Chifu School, uh, Wei Shen internment camp. And I found some incredible books, um, one in particular called Stolen Childhoods, which recounts hundreds of children's experiences of displacement during the war in lots of internment camps across the Pacific region. So this wasn't a unique experience to Chifu School. Um, and that's when I really started to get hold of this because I it sort of drilled down to the human, relatable, personal level. And I, I could really put myself into the shoes of those fearful children and the teachers with this responsibility. And I found an incredible website which has been created by the children who were in Weishen internment camp who, as adults, have obviously felt this need to sort of exercise some of the demons of that time in their lives. And they have the most incredible stories, detail. Um, There was so much I could glean from that in terms of day-to-day running of camp life, what what they were doing every day, how they were kept busy. Um, And then the, the backdrop of things progressing in the war that had a direct impact on on them in the camp. So it was multi-layered research, lots of photographs, lots of old footage of China at the time to understand the landscape and the country um, and the sensitivities that, you know, the clash of culture, if you like, between the British empire spirit and the Chinese culture that they were around. Um, and I started to then feel, okay, I, I can do this. I, I can bring all these threads and strands together. So, you know, I've been working on the book really for three years. Um, and it was, it needed that time, I think, for me to really get a grasp of these various strands of the history and, and of the story. And then drilling down into the real, you know, that human condition, what, what are we afraid of? Um, what drives us to, to act in a certain way? Well, there's so much there. It must have been very hard to narrow it down to what you needed to include in the book. Yeah, and and I think that's always the challenge with any novel and particularly with historical fiction. You sort of zone in on a piece of history or a person in history, but obviously there's a whole life there um, and you you struggle to tell that whole life in, in, in a novel in 100,000 words. So... Yeah, I had to make a conscious decision about to what extent was I going to tell what happened leading up to these events or just to go straight in. And that's what I decided to do was just go straight into school on the eve of Pearl Harbor. And there we go in a linear direction from there through to the liberation of the camp in in August 1945. Well, and there must be nuggets of really fascinating tidbits of information you learn that you're then have to cut from the story and you're like, oh, I really wish I could use that, but it just doesn't quite fit in to this particular tale. Yeah, absolutely. There, there always are, as they say, kill your darlings. And it's sort of almost painful extraction of, of either a chapter that you thought was fantastic when you wrote it on one rainy Saturday morning or that you just feel that parts of the story then slow things down too much or aren't aren't serving the story as I say but really I feel that nothing's ever wasted that everything that you discover through your research everything that you write on the page whether it ends up being taken out in in redrafting 
everything is important in developing the finished book. So I have what's called an outtakes file. So I find it helps me if I don't actually ever delete anything, but I I put it into an outtakes file, um, which can often end up being a small book in itself. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny that you say that because another author mentioned that on Twitter the other day and I'd never heard of that or really thought about it, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I think you just trick yourself because you think, I'm not actually deleting this. I, it's just going somewhere else. I'll use <laughs> <And> it later. <laughs> exactly. And you know, well, occasionally I have, and you you, you might go back and go, oh, yeah, that, that, that little incident that I discovered or that, that small little um, thing that was mentioned in passing, that actually could develop into something here. So, you know, as I say, nothing nothing's ever wasted. Well, that will lead me into my next question, which is tell me about the title and the cover. I love covers. I think this cover is beautiful. And I'm just curious how both came about. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm really, I'm so fascinated by both, by covers and titles. And I, I don't know how other authors work, but I'm always right there in the planning. And I have a lot of opinions about those things. And actually, what was really interesting with this book is I have two very different titles and different covers for different territories to the first for me. So When We Were Young and Brave is the title for the edition in the US and Canada and in the UK and in Australia and Ireland, it's called The Bird in the Bamboo Cage, which are two totally different titles. And that's fascinating to me how different territories react and respond differently to to titles. And I, I love them both equally. I think you you start to look at your cover as almost a familiar face. It's you, you spot it a mile away. If I ever see another author sharing an image of them in a bookshop, of course you zoom in to the shelves behind them and you can spot your own cover a mile away. <laughs> it does become, I think it's so important. I mean, the cover really is, it's the first portal into your book and people are so busy nowadays when they're browsing I think the cover really has to pop and I I love the colours on this cover and obviously there's a nod there to the blue of the girl guides and the haunting kind of sense of the young girl who's just so sweet and adorable and looking up to that incredible landscape of China and then the the aeroplanes to me immediately signal war and I, I just think the composition of it is is really striking and it to me it's really important that a cover is compelling and tells a story in itself and I think I think this cover really does that the title we, we had to work around quite a bit because there were very similar titles to this that had been used already we were close to titles a couple of times but then found oh, well, there already is a title at that so we we certainly wanted to evoke that sense of of bravery and the innocence and youth of the the children. And I think that the team have done a superb job. It really is a team effort. And I hope I help that rather than hinder it (laughs) with all my opinions and storyboarding that I send to them. Well, I definitely judge a book by a cover. And I feel like that's half the time how I end up grabbing a book because the cover's eye-catching or appealing. And I also really get frustrated when the cover does not reflect the story. So I see a cover, I start to read the book, and I'm thinking, how do these even match up? So I I like it so much better when clearly your cover perfectly matches your story. And then when we were young and brave, I mean, it makes you feel like 
they're telling a story, of, you know, something in the past and that's exactly what's happening. So I felt they both fit your book very well. Oh, it's so great to hear because at, you, you, honestly, there's so many discussions, the finessing of the one, you know, is it this word? Is it that word? How does it sound? What's the cadence of it when you say it out loud? And there's, there's so many discussions and emails and meetings held to get that right. So it, it really matters. Yeah. And you wouldn't necessarily think it's a problem to have a similar title or the same title as another book, but just recently I had recommended a book to a friend and didn't realize that there were two books with the same title. And she read it and she came back to me and she was like, I just don't really understand. Doesn't sound like the book you described and really something you would really like. And then we pulled it up and she had read the other title by another author versus the book I had picked. So I do think it's nice to have your own unique title. It is. And, and, you know, you always want to sort of put your stamp on the the literary work that's out there. And it, it sometimes works straight away. And sometimes you just have to sort of finesse and find your way around things. And ultimately, the reader will not know any of that. And, and they will just see the cover and, and the title. And, and as you say, it works and it's authentic to the words that are inside. And I think that is really important. My next question for you is, do you have a favorite of your books? As I thought about this, because I've read so many of your books, and I would be like, okay, The Cottingly Secret was my favorite. No, maybe A Memory of Violets. I couldn't settle on a favorite. I love them all. Well, I have the same dilemma, and it it really is like being asked, who's your favorite child? It's an incredible thing, because I think every every book at one point is your favorite. And I, I boiled it down to, it's the current book. It's the new book. It's my favorite book each time because it's it's the most it's the closest to your heart because you've just been in that world you've spent so much time with those characters you care and it's it's just being discovered so you're talking about it readers are reacting to it so yeah it's it's always the current one and I think to be honest there will always be a very special place in my heart for my first book the girl who came home because that started everything for me and it turned my dream of being a writer for and doing this job this wonderful job for a living it turned that dream into a reality and I I often stop when I'm walking past my shelves and I look at that book and it's like yeah we did it (laughs) so it's a mixture of the very first and the latest are my favorite but I have a very special place in my heart for them all yeah I loved The Girl Who Came Home, too, and I read it actually soon after it came out, and so then I've just followed your career as each book comes out, and I love when I find authors like that. That's like I did the same thing with Fiona Davis, where I just start with their first book and then keep an eye out for all the future books, but the other one that I really, really liked was The Cottingly Secret, and I think it's because of the fairies. I've always been intrigued with that whole story and how those girls pulled that off and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle getting involved, you know, so I I really did. I still recommend it all. All the time to people. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, they've each, and I think that's what's been so lovely. Each of my books is standalone. Each is set in its own space and time, talking about either a real event in history, like the Cottonly Fairy hoax, or a real person, like Grace Darling in The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter, or a real event, like the Chifu School and, and Wei Shen internment in When We Were Young and Brave. And I think they each have that appeal in their own right and it's so lovely for me when readers discover me 
now, for example, and they realize I have this backlist of, of books and, and ready-made library to go and discover, which is is just a fabulous thing for me to hear from readers. No, you're right. It is fun to also discover an author when they do have a good backlist. So it's it's fun either way. But I definitely always recommend your books to people and I'm always looking forward to the next one that's coming out. Oh, thank you so much. I, I'm the same. When I find an author that I love, I you press those books into people's hands and you you talk about it and it's it's a lovely shared experience. I agree. And on that note, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read lately that you would recommend. Oh, my goodness. Where to start? (laughs) One of my recommendations is Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. Oh, my goodness. It is the most incredible book. It's a story based around Shakespeare's son. Um, He had twins, Judith and Hamnet. And obviously the name Hamnet is, it's not a spelling mistake. It it was an alternate word for the name Hamlet, which obviously he named his play. And it's really the story of Hamnet as a young boy and his mother, uh, Shakespeare's wife, who we do know a little bit about, but do we really? And it's the most beautifully written, just fascinating look into that world that we think we know about. And actually, it's it really made me realise I knew very little about Shakespeare as a man and his private life. And it is just exquisite. I cannot recommend it enough. And talk about covers. <laughs> it's so striking. So that really helped me through the first couple of weeks of lockdown and, and has found its place on my special shelf because of that. So I'd highly recommend Hamlet by Maggie O'Farrell. I love her writing. I love I am, I am, I am. But I just think she writes beautifully. And I wasn't sure what Hamnet was about. I'm going to have to go pick it up. Yeah. And then another, I read another historical, you won't be surprised, just recently, well, maybe a month ago or so, is The Exiles by Christina Baker Klein. And oh my goodness, it's it's one of those books that I wish I'd written. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I mean about the idea of finding the author. And it's this incredible, epic, historical story of the women who were on the convict ships taken from the from Newgate Prison, notorious Newgate Prison in London, um, and taken off on the, the prison ships to Van Diemen's Land, to Tasmania. And it's such, again, it's such a fascinating piece of history. And what she does so brilliantly is sort of intertwine this story of these women on the convict ship with a story of an orphaned Aborigine child. So it's it's a really fascinating look at the, again, that period of history and, and how insensitive, you know, Western culture was to these countries that they they took over. And it's just, it's it really, it's this sweeping tale on the, on the high seas and then these beautiful tender moments. And I, I just loved it. And I, I believe it's an option for a movie and I cannot wait to watch it on the big screen. It'll be amazing. I keep hearing that. I haven't read it. I love The Orphan Train, but I hadn't oh, read this one because I was worried it was a little grim, but people say it's really not. It's really not. No, it, it's done so well. And there are obviously difficult parts to the book, but she handles it so sensitively. And 
the characters are just so compelling. Uh, you will cry, but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think sometimes we need to cry, don't we, when we read our fiction to get it out. Well, I mean, I had worried a little bit about that with when we were young and brave just because yeah. of the internment camp, but you handled it all beautifully, and I felt like it was ultimately a very uplifting story. Oh, thank you so much. And I really hoped that that would be the reaction that you can't set a story in a situation like that without it touching on some very difficult, harrowing moments. But I ultimately hoped that readers would feel that sense of hope and and that it ultimately is an uplifting novel when you get to the end. So thank you. It's lovely to hear because that was definitely my my hope when I was writing it. And I certainly don't mind reading about tough situations or grim topics. I mean, I think that's how you learn. But it's Mm -hmm. just when you're done and you're like, oh my gosh, there's no hope anywhere. And we're already living through so much that's so difficult that it's just hard to then want to pick up something that's really dreary. I sometimes find that a little bit with, I don't read an awful lot of crime. And I find that, to me, I find that more harrowing than sort of difficult historical situation because it feels too unpleasant deeply unpleasant (laughs) that's that would be my reaction you know to that whereas I can have a good old cry over a historical and sometimes there's some comfort in reading about difficult situations that people have overcome and it it helps us realize okay we can get through this we will see the other side life will go back to normal that is definitely correct well thank you so much for joining me today it has just been a delight to talk with you about when we were young and brave and I can't wait for the book to reach readers Me neither. And thank you so much for your time. It's been so great to chat. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Hazel's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope to see you next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.